Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Galatians chapter 4, or you can continue uh, looking on uh, with us in the bulletin as we consider God's Word together. We're going to be looking this morning, Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8 and continuing to verse 20. Please give attention to the reading of God's Word. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, Become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose and not only when I am present with you. My little children... For whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I am perplexed about you. The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge this is your word, and that you intend from this word a wealth of blessing for us as your people. We don't want to miss that blessing this morning, and so we would ask you now, through that same Spirit, who alone is the interpreter and illuminator of this word, that he would come now, and that he would make the truth of this word plain to our hearts, to such a matter that he would make it impact an indelible impression a lasting transformation upon our lives. Most of all, Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be glorified and that we would be formed a little bit more like you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you can tell, can't you, in this word that the Apostle Paul is confused. You see in this text something of the Apostle Paul's perplexed, confusion, anguish, concern for these, his little children, as he describes them, the church there in Galatia. If you've been with us in the study of the book of Galatians, you know that 
these Christians have fallen into false teaching. And this false teaching has had all kinds of devastating effects upon their life. And the Apostle Paul has written this letter. We might call it a scathing letter, a letter of rebuke. And he's done so not out of a mean spirit, not as an angry man who's ready to give up on them, but as a pastor. In one sense, as a parent, as one who loves them so deeply, having, humanly speaking, been the one who the Lord used to bring new birth into their lives. In fact, it's an unusual metaphor that the Apostle Paul uses here as he says, I am in anguish of childbirth yet again for you. It's as if he's painting himself as a spiritual mother. He doesn't do that in many contexts when he, when he speaks of his spiritual posterity, but he does here in this context. He sees himself as a divine instrument of the Lord who has in the past, in his first visit to Galatia, brought forth spiritual life. But now again, as he sees the slavic commitment to religiosity that has begun to take place in Galatia, he sees him having to come back, and as it were, a new birth is having to happen all over again. And he's confused. He's perplexed, he says. He says in In verse 11, I'm afraid that I've labored in vain for you. Boy, that sounds like the sentiment of a parent, doesn't it? Parents often feel this way when they're raising their children. You have those moments, don't you, of flashes of light and where you're just astonished at things that they do, the kindnesses and acts of encouragement and charity and and love. It just absolutely will blow you away. And then in the very next moment, you're going, what in the world were you thinking? Why did you do what you did? You completely seem to fall off the tracks. What happened? To cause this to take place. In many ways, the Apostle Paul is trying to address that question, and it's a very personal question, because not only as we put ourselves in the shoes of parents in this room thinking about children, but why don't we for a minute put ourselves in the shoes of the children? Because that's who we are. He's told us in the previous passage that we're sons of God. We aren't, in other words, those whom we like to think of ourselves as the mature ones who always stay on track. Doesn't your life often look like an immature child, if you're really honest about it? That you forget all of the things that you're supposed to know, and you don't do the things that you know that you ought to do, and that you're constantly, as it were, having to be reminded to pick up your clothes in your room and remember to brush your teeth in the morning. And it would seem by now that you'd be further along than that. If we were really honest with ourselves, sometimes we just look like grown-up kids who really aren't that grown-up at all. The Apostle Paul knows that about the church at Galatia, and he knows that about the reality of our spiritual lives. You know, we were here last week, and we talked about the gospel. Do you remember how encouraged you were? Do you remember how this week was going to be different? (laughs) And did you... Did you notice you acted a little bit like a two-year-old this week? You forgot everything that your father has told you? You forgot his love, you forgot his promises, you forgot his kind instructions, and you just trampled over it all week long, and here you are again, being called in to be reminded of his love and his grace. I'm here with you. We're all in this together. 
That in many ways is the spirit of the Apostle Paul right here in Galatians chapter 4. And he wants to, he, he wants to shine light into your heart, into my heart. And he wants us to see the pattern of gospel freedom as opposed to the pattern of what we might call a ministry of religious slavery. And the fact that sometimes our religion makes no difference at all in our lives, and other times it seems like it makes a dramatic transformation. But the reason, in many cases, is because something has tweaked in our heart, and maybe we've missed it. That somehow or another, the joy of our faith, we lost it. The energy and the momentum behind it is vanished. What happened? Why is change not taking place? Why is it that those who are shepherding us feel like the Apostle Paul a lot of the time? They're in anguish again, as it were, in the pangs of childbirth until Christ is really formed in you. I want to look at this passage in just two ways this morning. I want to look at the ministry of religious slavery. You heard that right. The ministry of religious slavery because it actually does have a fake or false ministry that many of us fall prey to. And then I want to look at the ministry of gospel freedom. And I want you to see that that's where the Apostle Paul is calling us. And I want you to see how to get there from here. So let's look first at the ministry of religious slavery. And I want you to see it takes on two forms according to the Apostle Paul. It takes on the form of religious paganism. And it also takes on the form of religious legalism. Let's start first with religious paganism. That's where Paul starts. If you look with me in verse 8 of this passage, the Apostle Paul is doing a little history. He says, Before I came and preached to you, you Galatian Christians were nothing more than traditional idol pagan worshipers. You'd go to the temples of Zeus or Aphrodite or Apollo and you'd perform the sacred pagan customary rituals. Notice what he says there in verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved. It was a ministry of pagan slavery. You were enslaved to those that were by nature not gods. But then notice what he says. As God would have it, I got, I got sick. <laughs> verse 13, I got a bodily ailment. And I wasn't even planning on coming to your area. But, in, but because of the bodily ailment, I had to show up in Galatia either on detour or in delay, and as God would have it, I had the opportunity to preach to you in the moment of my rehabilitation. And you know what happened, verse 9? You came to know God, or, or even better, you came to be known by God. He built a relationship with you. But here's why I'm so confused. You received that salvation with so much joy, so much commitment, you easily forsook and turned from all of the idol worshiping around you. But now, after you've tasted the riches of this grace, after you've embraced the gloriousness of the gospel that's in Christ, how can you, verse 9, turn back again, he says, to the worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves, notice that word again, you want to be once more. In other words, you're going back. You're going back to who it is you were before you knew Christ. You're forsaking him. I, and it blows my mind. You're turning away again from the relationship of the knowledge of God and his knowledge of you and the joy that came in your salvation. And it hasn't even been all of that long. But now you're turning back to the old paganism, to the rituals that you were 
customarily committed to previous to knowing Christ. That's what it looks like the Apostle Paul is saying here. But I want you to see he's actually saying it in a very nuanced and maybe even paradoxical way. What do I mean by that? They are turning back to paganism, but not by turning back, but by turning toward a new kind of paganism. Where do I see this? Well, let's look first at verse 9 so you can understand what he's talking about. You see that strange little phrase? The elementary principles, or your translation might say spirits of the world. I want you to see what he's talking about there. He's saying, I want you to remember how you used to worship. You remember how you used to worship in ancient paganism? If you were a fisherman and you really wanted a big catch of fish, you'd need to go sacrifice to the river god so that he would bless you on your fisherman's trip. And this you'd get a bunch of fish. If you were a couple and you wanted a child, you'd want to sacrifice to the fertility gods. And if you appeased the fertility gods, it was a much higher likelihood that you would be able to receive a child. In other words, when you are slavishly serving the gods, you'll be able to get from them what you want. The ancient paganism worked that way. If you weren't gaining a child, for instance, you might see yourself as out of accord with the fertility gods, and thus you need to appease them or make them happy or somehow get them on your side. But whatever you needed to do, you had to work in order to earn it. You didn't have the relationship of a loving relationship with a God who was intimate with you, of whom you love to be in their presence. You had a fearful, insecure, and anxious relationship with the gods, and they demanded from you, a certain level of service in order to bless you. And he says here, you're turning back to that. But here's what I want you to see. They're actually not turning to the Greek gods. They're turning instead to the Old Testament law. Look at what he says, verse 10. Verse 9 says, Turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principle of the world whose slaves you want Want to be once more. And then he says this, verse 10. You observe days and months and seasons and years. <laughs> well, that's not pagan ritual. That's not what he's talking about in verse 10. Pagan ritual would have been, you know, going to the temple of Aphrodite and hiring a, a, a temple prostitute in order, to, in order to increase your love life or to give a human sacrifice to Zeus in order to, in order to bring peace from the war of the raging nations. That's what it would have looked like. It wouldn't have looked like keeping months and seasons and, and years as he describes here. He's saying, actually, you're turning back to paganism when you turn towards Old Testament ceremonial law like it'll save you. At its very spirit, it's the exact same thing, though it's wrapped in different clothing. You remember the false teachers who had come into Galatia? What had they taught? They had taught that it was great that you believed in Jesus, but you know what? Now you need to keep the Old Testament law to maintain your standing with the Lord. Now you need to keep the laws in order to remain blessed by the Lord. In other words, they were turning their sonship back into slavery, which was the very center of ancient paganism. And what Paul is saying here, whether you're serving a dolled-up Old Testament ceremonial law in order to manipulate God to bless you, or you're sleeping with a temple prostitute in, that, that is committed to Aphrodite, the center is the same. You have to work to please God to get what you want. And you're a slave. 
He says there's no difference. In fact, what he's saying is there's two members at Cornerstone. One this morning comes and is a volunteer in the welcome team and handed out bulletins and sang songs this morning and will glad hand and encourage so many people in this room. And they do so from a place of joy and acceptance from the Lord. It's an overflow of their commitment to Christ because they already know they're approved of in Him. And there's another worshiper at Cornerstone who also volunteers with the welcome team, who in addition to that assists in Sunday school. And also is leading in worship. But this person does it in order to pay their dues. In order to check the box. In order to get on God's good side. And what he's actually saying is there are two types of worshipers. Who both might name the name of Christ. But they're doing it from two completely different operating motivations and centers. One is doing it to earn a standing with the Lord. One is doing it from an earned standing in Christ. And it's the difference, he says, between Christianity and paganism. That's the difference. He says, so one is actually a religion of slavery and one is a religion of of freedom. And so the question becomes, how does one live in the ministry of gospel freedom? If that's what the ministry of slavery looks like, And that's why we oftentimes walk through a quote-unquote Christian life in a way that's just grunting and out, joyless. We have no desire, no momentum, no sense of of wanting to serve the Lord, but actually doing it out of just, just mere rote or mere duty. What would it be like to live from a place where your ministry is flowing from gospel freedom? He said, because that's where the center of Christianity really is. That's where the center of Christianity really is. And so Paul, in verses 12 to 20, begins to unpack for us, okay, if you can spot those two motivations in your own heart, and just by the way, all of us struggle with the tension of that. Sometimes you might worship as one who is religiously slaved, and sometimes you may worship as one who is gospel-free. But what would it look like to more and more die to the slavery that is really a kind of paganism, as he describes it here in the passage? And what would it look like to really live more into the gospel of freedom? He's going to tell us that in verses 12 to 20. And I want you to see his heart in this. He says there in verse 19, I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. Now I want to take three things from that little phrase and I think it'll help us unpack the rest of what he's saying in this passage because I want you to understand this morning gospel ministry and the freedom that attends it. That's what I want you to understand. That one simple thing. What is gospel ministry and what is the freedom that attends it? And when I say gospel ministry, I don't want you to think, well, I don't want to be a pastor. I'm not talking about pastoral ministry. I'm talking about the ministry that flows out of any follower of Christ who is rooted in and living from the gospel. Anyone who is called to be a disciple and to make disciples. By the way, that's every Christian in this room. Any place, what's the place of heart and of life that should be the center operating system from which it happens? Here's here's what he begins to describe. He says, I am in anguish of childbirth until Christ be formed in you. And there's three things. I think that he's showing us from that verse and in this section. The first is this. He's telling us that I want you to know the experience of gospel ministry. I want you to know how gospel ministry feels. How it ought to feel. Because I think that's really important. 
that we understand what the nature of gospel ministry is. Because sometimes, and maybe you've been like this before, you've served Christ and you thought to yourself, I thought it would feel different. <laughs> I thought it would be quote-unquote, better than this, or maybe it surprised you at how great it was, but it often strikes against what we expect or our sensibilities from it. What's the experience of gospel ministry? And then secondly, I want you to look at what's the aim of gospel ministry? What's, it, what's its focus? What's it actually after? And then I want you to see, thirdly, the fruit of gospel ministry. All right, I want you to see the fruit of gospel ministry. So he says here first, uh, the experience of gospel ministry. The language I want to look at is the language of anguish. Anguish. I am in anguish. In childbirth, he's thinking of some of the worst pain, ladies, that can be experienced. He's thinking of some of the worst pain that can be experienced, but simultaneously the gr- one of the greatest moments that you ever live. It's bringing forth incredible new birth, but the process by which to do that is incredibly painful. What is the experience of real gospel ministry? You know what he says? Suffering. That's the experience. He's going to prove that later because even his bodily ailment became the means of gospel ministry. All right? He's going to prove it that suffering is actually God's school by which gospel ministry takes over our heart and extends to us into the lives of others. This whole passage is full of anguish. We mentioned it in verse 11. I've labored over them in vain. Same concept. Verse 20. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The Apostle Paul, you can hear in his, his, his whole message here, sadness, pain, suffering, heartbreak, confusion, that's gospel ministry. That's typical experience of gospel ministry. In fact, to minister is by its very definition to invite suffering into your life. To minister means to serve. How many times have you served and not experienced some pain? The very nature of the word service means that you're sacrificing. The very notion of it, to be called a minister, to be one who is a servant of Christ... And so what Paul is saying here is if you really are a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and you're committed to gospel ministry and you're not ready to suffer, then you'll never understand the nature of what gospel ministry is really about. That's the experience. Now, we know that that is true for this reason. If Christ suffered to save us, would it not also be logically true that we must suffer in order to be sanctified? How is it possible that the beginning of the Christian life would be totally different than the path of the Christian life? It's to be fully expected that suffering and pain and heartache is going to attend to the work of ministry. Now, on this encouraging note, he then turns from the experience of gospel ministry and he says, Listen, I want you to know the aim, though, of gospel ministry because here's where your joy is going to come. The experience of gospel ministry is going to be suffering, but the aim of gospel ministry is this, Christian formation. Christian formation. He says, I anguish over you until Christ is formed in you. This is why I love the Apostle Paul. He's perplexed. He's in anguish. And he doesn't give up. Instead, he sets his sight on the end game 
for what it is that he's desiring them to become. He sets his sights on Christ and the formation of Christ in the persons in whom he labors for. Listen, here's what he's saying, friends. When you go and visit someone who is sick and in the hospital, when you go counsel someone who's struggling with a sin, when you go be an in a mediator for someone who's in the midst of conflict, when you teach a Sunday school class, you have one single-minded purpose in the challenge, the struggle, in what will be the suffering of that ministry. Your single-minded purpose is that Christ would be formed in them. That's your single-minded purpose. You don't go to that process and go, I hope they like me. I hope they feel good at the end of this. I hope this is a success by worldly standards. Your single-minded focus, the success and excellence radar, is summed up in the term formed in Christ. That's where the fruit is. That's what the focus is. That's what the reality is. Now, this is very important to the text. It means that discipleship is not about you. When we're in relationship to someone and we're trying to help them, you know what we're often trying to do? We're trying to get them to do what we would do. We're trying to get them to think what we would think. We're trying to get them to feel what we would feel. We're trying to get them to live as we would live. Because obviously the way we live is the most awesome way to live. That is just resident within your being. Like you've got, to, you've got to be acknowledge that your tendency is to duplicate yourself and to draw people to yourself. And the very nature of gospel ministry is, is counterintuitive to that. It's contradictory to that. What false teachers do, what the teachers hear actually in... Galatia did, is they drew people to themselves. They sought to make the people in the image of themselves, and they sought to get from the people praise for themselves. That's what they sought to do. Now, if you just look at the dark recesses of your heart, you'll see all three of those are fairly operable in ministry. You meet with someone, you're thinking, i got to change them to be the people that I think they should be, which will be a lot like me. And at the end of this, I would really love for them to say a lot of great things about me and how well I did. And that is completely slavish. It's completely committed to self rather than committed to Christ being formed in you. I want you to see the stark contrast. I know this is where the Apostle Paul is going because look at verse 17. He says this of the Galatian teachers. They make much of you, notice, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that is, hinder your freedom in order that you might make much of them. That's the goal of their teaching. That's the goal of their teaching. They want to make much of you, flattery, in order that you would make much of them. I was reading a novel recently where the character was described this way. He always says something nice about you with the expectation that you would return the favor. The Apostle Paul says this is the slavish approach to disciple-making that came through the false teachers and is nothing but rife with paganism. He says the difference between a Christian discipler and one who is a, a, a not a Christian discipler is the Christian discipler is constantly focused on the formation of the person in Christ. They see their total and complete responsibility as to lead this person to Christ. They're not drawing themselves to the person. They're drawing them to Christ. They're not trying to form this person in their own image. They're seeking to see them formed in the image of Christ. They're not trying to gain praise for themselves. They're trying to gain praise for Christ. Now, we know this is the case because listen to how the Apostle Paul instructs them. It looks counterintuitive. Look at uh, verse 12. He says, Brothers, I entreat you 
to become as I am, as I have become as you are. Now this seems, let me just you know, disabuse you of this at the front. This seems like Paul's making the same mistake that the Galatian false teachers are making. He says, listen, all they want to do is draw you unto themselves, make them in your own image, and they want to get praise. Really, that's not what you want to do. You want to to follow me. (laughs) Which sounds like, okay, is is that not the the equal opposite um, of what it is that you just said that, that they shouldn't do? But I want to tell you, the Apostle Paul means something qualitatively different than that than what we would think at first blush. Because I want you to think, who is the Apostle Paul and what is he like? Who is the Apostle Paul and what he's like? That's what he's actually, that's the question embedded in that instruction. I wish that you would become as I am. In fact, I entreat, it's the word plead or literally beg. Picture the Apostle Paul on his knees. I beg you to become as I am. Now in saying that, we have to ask the question, who is the Apostle Paul and what is he like? And I think the very best way to get that is to look at what I would believe is, the, is maybe the most definitive statement the Apostle Paul ever makes about his own identity, character, purpose, and life. And we've already read it so far in the book of Galatians. It's Galatians 2.20. You remember what the Apostle Paul says about himself? This is what he says. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. So when the Apostle Paul says, become like me, well, what does it mean to become like Paul? It means to become like Christ. It means to become totally sold out, identity, life, and purpose to Christ. Isn't the Apostle Paul saying in Philippians, to live is Christ? And to die is gain? Does he not say in 1 Corinthians 12, follow me as I follow Christ, is the Apostle Paul trying to draw attention to himself? Or is he in drawing attention to his own exemplary, personal, incarnational ministry, wanting to you to draw to him so you see through him into the very person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, of course that's it. Of course that's what the Apostle Paul is after. Because to drive this point home, he begins to revisit the history of when he first visited them. He said, I want to just remind you of who I was when I came to you. If I'm going to call you to become like like me as I follow Christ, I need to remind you of who I was when I was with you. And he says, when I was with you, you know what? You received me as an angel of God. That's the language he uses here. Strong language. As an angel of God, then then he puts a little comma there, and you'll see the little phrase, as Christ Jesus. In other words, you received me as if I was Christ with you. You received me as if I was Christ with you. That's the way that you received me when I came. And I know that your love was so deep for me because when I came to you, you would be willing, and he uses this really odd phrase, look at it there, verse 15, that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, probably not the term of affection you would typically use. You know, you love me so much, I know you would gouge your eyes out for me. It's kind of gross, Paul. I'm not really sure what you're after here. But I, I want you to just think contextually with me for just a minute. The Apostle Paul has a bodily ailment. We're told that as he comes to the church of Galatia, which means that he's in a weak moment when it comes to them. He wasn't originally planning to even come to Galatia. We're told in 1 Corinthians that the Apostle Paul has a thorn in the flesh. 
All right? We're told that he has a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't describe it greatly, but we know that he pled with the Lord for the Lord to take it away. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. If you look at the end of Galatians chapter 6, I want you to see this in Galatians 6 verse 11. The Apostle Paul makes this little, little, what seems like a throwaway comment, but listen to what he says. He says, I want you to see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's very possible that the Apostle Paul had someone who transcribed his letters. He vocally spoke, someone transcribed his letters. But he, to authenticate the letters, would put something at the end. And he's describing here exaggerated letters, letters that were large. Well, why would someone write large letters? Well, maybe someone who has difficulty seeing. Someone who has eye trouble. Someone who has some infection or inflammation of the eyes. Could it be that the Apostle Paul is saying, you saw how ailed I was. You saw the thorn in the flesh. You, you see what large letters I have to write with. That if it were possible, you would have given me your own eyes so that I would be healed. In other words, you would have joyfully and freely sacrificed for me so that I would have been made whole. I know that you got the gospel because... That's exactly what Christ did for you. He joyfully and freely gave of himself to make you whole. That's exactly what I did when I came to you. I joyfully and freely gave of myself to make you whole. Don't you remember that I came to you in bodily ailment, meaning I was at a place of incredible weakness? And I didn't expect to preach to you the gospel. And I could have just waited out my time. But instead, I used my weakness as a way in which to display for you um, the glories of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I didn't say, hey, you're not on my itinerary. I don't have time for you. But instead, I saw it as God's divine appointment. I saw my ailing flesh as a means by which to make Christ known. I saw the, the delay in my schedule as a divine appointment for which the Lord um, gave me an opportunity to preach to those who I would not have. I see everything in order to see Christ formed in you. Everything is the prioritized by Christ. Everything is. You see, this is the freedom of the Apostle Paul and it's the freedom of gospel ministry. When we begin to focus on our ministry and the question that sits on the very top of our heads as we approach each other in relationship is, how might this interaction further form Christ in him or her? How might this engagement show the beauty of Christ? How might I, with the disposition, the attitude, the gestures, the, the word choices, the acts of service, in everything that I do, how might I be completely held captive to the purpose and opportunities of Christ? Even when I have a bodily ailment, I'm thinking to myself, how can I use this for Christ? Even when he blows up my schedule and I find myself in a place I didn't want to be, I say to myself, how might I use this for Christ? That's what he's saying. That's the nature of gospel ministry. It will include suffering. It will be Christ-focused, but here's the fruit of it. It will be absolutely free. It will be absolutely free. I want you to think of the Apostle Paul. Have you ever met a freer man? <laughs> have, you, have you ever met a freer man? Ever, under any circumstances? Chain him up. He preaches the gospel to the guards and the other, other prisoners around him, and they're radically converted. Threaten to kill him, he says, to die his gang. You know, stone him. He runs out of the town. And then ultimately goes back in and preaches again. At the end of the, of the book of Acts, he's shipwrecked on an island of Malta as he's trying to get to Rome. He lands on the island, gets bit by a snake. 
The people think he's cursed because all these bad things are happening to him. But when he doesn't die of the snake bite, they decide he's a god and will listen to him. So he preaches to them and begins to heal them. He used a shipwreck and a snake bite as a means of telling the gospel. This man is utterly obsessed with Christ being formed in whoever and under whatever circumstances he might possibly be made known. This man is not held captive. This man is utterly free. This man, this man has never had his schedule ruined because his priority is all in Christ. He has never had a mistake happen because everything's in Christ. Everything he sees as orchestrated under the priority of Jesus and the fruit of that kind of ministry is he is a man who lives utterly free. And so when Paul says, become like me, he's saying, become like Christ. And when you become like Christ, you live within the freedom of gospel ministry. You know, the beauty of this passage and what the Apostle Paul is actually teaching us in gospel ministry is that this is what it's like to truly live from the acceptance and the love of God. You see, when Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Do You see, when you begin to get Christ, you begin to love others and you begin to give yourself up for others. And you don't think to yourself, wow, I am just really great. You think this is really awesome that God is at work. How can I, how can I be spent more for Jesus? What am I missing? What are the opportunities I'm passing by? What are the ways that I could more make Christ known? How have I been looking at my suffering as an obstacle rather than an opportunity? How have I been looking at my life not being the way it is as a trouble spot rather than a place to make Jesus known? How have I been looking at that coworker as someone to put up with rather than someone to share Christ with? How have I been treating my children like something to manage rather than someone to show the beauty of Jesus to? That's a fundamental mind shift and heart shift. And I would suggest to you that it will cost you suffering. (laughs) And it will be Christ-saturated in its focus, but it will bear the fruit of absolute freedom. And here's 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 the fact of the matter. You can't have the freedom without the suffering. Because we can't have the resurrection without the cross. We can't have the resurrection without the cross. The very nature of salvation required that Jesus pay the penalty for sin in order to show the victory over death. We too must walk in the sufferings of Christ and in so doing experience the life and freedom that comes on the other side. And even the life of freedom that comes right from within. Right from within the suffering. Because we realize that the joy of life doesn't come from the circumstances. The joy of life comes from the Christ who's in the midst of the circumstances. And as we know him and as we share him, we find the freedom and the joy that we were made for. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, would you raise up within this your congregation, your people, a spirit of gospel ministry. A spirit of gospel ministry that leads to freedom. Would you banish from our midst... Uh, the slavic religiosity that is, that is simply looking to you to get from you what it is that we want rather than serving you to get you to get what you want. Father, less of us, more of you in Christ. That's our prayer. We must decrease. You must increase.
This is the nature of gospel ministry, and this is the nature of freedom for the freedom of which we've been made. So, Lord, I pray right now that you would bring the measure of conviction and the measure of transformation that is directly proportionate to the needs in this room through the power of your Holy Spirit attending this truth. That is your ability. You alone have that ability. We are utterly dependent upon you for it. So come now and see and do among us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.